In today's episode, a news roundup. Russian President Vladimir Putin has a secret cryotherapy chamber. A pyramid-shaped UFO has been verified by the Pentagon. Witchcraft on the rise in the USA. And biblical scholar vindicates an alleged forger. All this on today's Spectral Skull Session. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Do you ever have this problem? You're getting ready for a long walk in the woods and you want to roll a spliff of smokable herb. You've got your herb in the bathroom, you're rooting around in your toiletries kit for medical scissors so you can chop it up nice and fine, but then you have to go get a plate from the kitchen. When you're all done, it's a mess. You've got herbs all over the bathroom, your hands smell like herb, you've got to wash all this stuff and put it back. It takes forever to get out the door, you're not vibing, you gotta light that spliff up before you can feel at peace. Ugh. Luckily, Happy Trees has the solution. A premium grade stash box from Happy Trees. That's happytreesupplies.com. Happy Trees sells a convenient lockable stash box. It comes with a four piece titanium grinder that will give you the smooth grind you've been looking for. The 50 diamond cut teeth grinds your herb to the perfect size for cones and rolls. The Neo Dominium magnets keep the lid on tight while you grind. There's also a stash jar which will protect your herb from damaging UV rays and keep moisture in so your stash stays fresh. The airtight seal helps keep smells inside so you can save them for yourself. There's also a metal rolling tray so you can save every precious bud. And everything fits snugly into the box. Plus it has a key so your nosy roommate or your little brother isn't poking around in your stash. They come in three varieties. There's the Metatron's Cube-themed box that has Metatron's Cube etched on the box and every accessory. Metatron's Cube is a sacred image associated with the angel who translates the directives of God into a form comprehensible to humans. This is according to the Kabbalah. There's also a Desert Visions-themed box. It has colorful desert scenes painted onto the accessories. And for those of you who prefer plain, there's a box made of bamboo that is just adorable. I have my own Happy Tree stash box. Yes, I use it to hold my stash. I absolutely love it. These boxes range from $38.90 to $28.90 on the website, happytreesupplies.com. But now Happy Trees is offering a special deal to anyone who listens to this show. Use the coupon code SPECTRAL20 for a 20% discount. What are you waiting for? Skip the mess, get organized, and preserve your stash from degrading ultraviolet light and snoopy little thieves who try to make off with your herb. 
check out happytreesupplies.com. That's happytreesupplies.com. Welcome back. I'm experimenting with a new format on the show, and that is to do a news roundup every other week that will allow me to do deep dives into difficult material every other week, so staggered. So this week, we're doing a news roundup, and next week, we'll have a story on fairies. I'm going to go into depth about Irish fairy tales, which are literal stories about the we people, also known as the good people. Let's get into it. Putin's disembodied head could soon be on display near Moscow, if he dies, that is. A team of researchers associated with the Russian dissident Alexei Navalny have been releasing details about Russian President Vladimir Putin's lavish private residences. Most recently, they have revealed that Mr. Putin has a secret cryotherapy chamber in his main palace. While some of the lakeside property is state-owned and designated for official use, a more lavish section with a mansion has been privately developed into what has been described as a playground for the health-conscious head of state. In particular, the investigation has focused on a 7,000-square-meter spa complex whose floor plans show a float pool, massage rooms, a swimming pool, and other amenities, including an extreme cold treatment cryotherapy chamber rented from a company alleged to belong to one of Mr. Putin's closest friends. This was all reported by The Guardian, citing the nonprofit founded by dissident Alexei Navalny. Mr. Navalny is in a Russian prison right now. Navalny said he was being threatened with being force-fed in a straitjacket unless he ends a hunger strike. He's begun hunger striking against his treatment in Russian prison. He's also demanded to be seen by his doctor for reported numbness in his back and legs. His wife reports he's lost 16 kilograms, that's 35 pounds, since being imprisoned earlier this year after he voluntarily returned to Moscow. Mr. Navalny had previously been poisoned and was miraculously saved when he was quickly flown to Germany for medical treatment. The Russian government denies any involvement in his poisoning. Mr. Putin, as my Russian studies professor used to call him, has been in power since I think it's 1998. He's been around for 22 years. In that time, he has become fabulously wealthy. He may be the richest man on the planet, but I prefer Elon Musk. Musk builds spaceships, electric cars, and tunnels. Musk wants humanity to go to Mars, and his mistress has said she is willing to die on Mars, a level of devotion I find very attractive. Meanwhile, Mr. Putin has imprisoned his ex-wife in a mental institution. Buy Dogecoin. No doubt Putin is wasting his people's money on things like a private hockey rink and his lavish mansions. And now it sounds like he may be planning on keeping his mistress's legs alive forever in a cryogenic tube. Because that's how rich and decadent he's become. Uh, on the other hand, uh, maybe this is just cryotherapy, a cold therapy unit, because Putin is a tough bro, enjoys freezing himself to activate heat shock proteins. Shades of Joe Rogan here. Let's move on. Two weeks ago, this show reported on UFO sightings by the U.S. Navy in July 2019. Those sightings took place off the coast of California and allegedly involved multiple naval destroyers and also a cruise liner. 
Now, multiple news sources are reporting that video of those UFOs, which at the time were called drones, are available to the public. The video, which the Pentagon has confirmed, show what appears to be pyramid-shaped objects. If indeed this is the video that corresponds to the sightings that we previously reported on here on the Spectral Skull Session, that would have been two weeks ago, then this is astonishing. To quickly recap, the War Zone, which is part of a newsy website called The Drive, had previously said these drones, or whatever they are, were described only as lights, well, lights and drones. In one case, a hovering light, in other cases as maneuvering lights that circled the USS Kidd and other naval destroyers. But now USA Today is saying that Jeremy Corbell, who is a uh, director who makes documentaries about UFOs, he obtained videos of flying pyramids. He is a major player in the world of disseminating UFO information. I do believe that there are some people out there in the UFO community who are being used as useful, useful, how do I put it? Um, the term is useful idiot by the big heads inside the intelligence community. I believe this would be our intelligence community, the United States. These people get leaked information from time to time. Why would the intel community leak information? Well, they can drop a few grainy videos of UFOs to their preferred source. He gets attention and thus power through his access. But that doesn't make him special. Uh, he's not someone who did extraordinary legwork, who has done you know, incredible next generation investigation or analysis. He's just a journalist essentially who got thrown a bone. Thus, his gains in power and status are unearned. He becomes elevated for reasons other than competence. This makes him vulnerable. He needs that next leak to keep his status. And this means you can throw him fake bones, give him a fake image or video next time, maybe. He's going to put it out there, too. He needs this stuff to keep his reputation up. Now, a fake video or image could tell whatever story you, the intelligence community, want the public to receive. As you've all heard on this show before, I believe there are two possible UFO narratives being crafted by our intel community. One, UFOs are scary. So we need a bigger military budget, especially for very advanced high-technology weapons. Two, the UFOs are commanded by superior beings who want us to follow their commands. And those commands will ultimately prove to be highly favorable to the policies and principles of people in the U.S. government. None of this is an attempt to say that UFOs aren't real. I believe there's definitely something going on in our skies. Actually, I suspect there are multiple different totally explained phenomena. Specifically, I think close encounters of the third kind, sightings of metallic craft in the sky, drones and orbs are ultimately caused by three or four distinct phenomena. So I definitely think, for example, orbs, these balls of light that people see, are in a different category from the metallic craft. And I think that a lot of these drone sightings are in a different category from both the orbs and the metallic craft. And I suspect that when people get kidnapped by aliens, that's another thing entirely. But certainly some of these things might ultimately prove to be connected or the same. But I think that there will at least be three different things found to be going on in the sky when this is all cleared up. Wonders are real. 
the existence of wonders does not mean you should trust the U.S. intelligence community, nor any foreign intelligence community for that matter. Related to this, Bob Schaefer is reporting that many of the military um, captured photos and videos that have been making their way to the public recently have evidence of a suspicious chain of custody. First, should be noted that this is high quality content that is always apparently passing through the same Defense Department briefing. That briefing itself is classified, but someone keeps leaking these photos. This suggests to me that there's maybe one person or maybe uh, a cabal or faction within the Pentagon that's doing the leaking. Second, as reported by Schaefer on badufos.com, many of these videos and photos we're getting are coming from repeated observers. These are people who have seen multiple UFOs in their lives. And as the famous early UFOologist J. Allen Hynek once stated, you can't trust repeat observers. Uh, the reason is it's so rare for any of us to see a UFO, much less get a good photo of one. It's highly suspicious when the same person captures multiple different UFOs in one lifetime. And how do we know they're repeat observers? We'll go back to those videos that we reported on last year on our very first um, reporting on UFOs that were reported on by the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, the gimbal and go fast videos. Those videos show the heads up display of the pilot and they show suspiciously similar data such as altitude and also targeting information that seems to imply that the same targeting equipment was used in both video captures. This would seem to imply that the same aircraft on the same flight captured both the gimbal and go fast videos. So it could be that this is the same UFO, the gimbal and go fast, and that maybe it changed shape. And why would it change shape? Well, UFOs are known to change shape, one, but also two, balloons will change shape, especially if they're rotating. They'll look very different. Um, maybe not the best explanation here because the go fast is moving very quickly. Nevertheless, there's something suspicious. As badufos.com summarizes, quote, four Navy UFO videos and three Navy UFO photos have recently been published. Five of the seven come from just two repeaters. Ultimately, I see this as evidence that information on UFOs is being controlled, possibly evidence that the UFOs are being observed in controlled situations, which would suggest that perhaps they are American craft, or at least that some of them are American craft. As I said two weeks ago, I sincerely hope they are either American or non-human because if they are the product of the Chinese Liberation Army, we are all in a lot of trouble. Moving on again. This is not a formal news item, but I'd like to comment on the rise of witches on social media. This show has a presence on Twitter. Look us up, Spectral Skull Session. We're also on Gab and Instagram. And I am noticing a major increase in the presence of witches across platforms. More and more young adults, especially women, are turning to witchcraft. A 2014 Pew Research Center report suggested that the United States adult population of pagans and Wiccans was about 730,000 on par with the number of Unitarians, and that was six years ago. So I'm thinking we now may have many more witches than Unitarians. Apologies, though, to both pagans and Wiccans 
for being grouped together. That's the Pew Research Center for you. That's not me. I don't know. They didn't report the numbers separately. Um, as the Atlantic notes in a March 2020 article, why is witchcraft on the rise? Quote, in the U.S., mainstream interest in witches has occasionally waned, but mostly waxed, usually in tandem with the rise of feminism and the plummeting of trust in establishment ideas. In the 19th century, as transcendentalism and the women's suffrage movement took hold, witches enjoyed the beginnings of a rebranding from wicked devil worshippers to intuitive, wise women. Woodstock and second-wave feminism were a boon for witches, whose popularity spiked again following the Anita Hill hearings in the 90s, and again after Donald Trump's election and alongside the Me Too movement. They also go on to note that, quote, the latest witch renaissance coincides with a growing fascination with astrology, crystals, and tarot, which, like magic, practitioners consider ways to tap into unseen, unconventional sources of power, which can be especially appealing for people who feel disenfranchised or have grown wary of trying to enact change by working within the system, end quote. Okay, so here we have a sociological account of the rise in witchcraft. I've been hearing this sort of argument that interest in occult technologies, such as astrology, scrying, spells, UFO communication, and seances are caused by political and cultural instability. I've been hearing this since I read Carl Sagan's book, Demon Haunted World, when I was a teenager. Sagan initially won me over to an anti-occult mindset with his optimistic and pro-science message that uh, these kinds of things are just something that people who are weak and scared turn to, while science is always the way forward. Today, I'm skeptical of his reductionism, this idea that people are only interested in magic and mystery because they're frightened by the instability in the world, seems to really denigrate human spirituality, in my view. I'd like to offer an alternative explanation. People are probably getting into witchcraft because it's fun. And as the economist Tyler Cohen recently stated on the Alex Friedman podcast, quote, everybody is weird now, end quote. Because of increased access to the internet, uh, social media, and then recently the lockdown, it's become socially acceptable to do things that are weird and different. And I say, great. If you want to cast spells, cast spells. I've never been really interested in magic myself. I read Aleister Crawley as a teenager, and I've kept a copy of the Book of Lies in my private collection all my life. Book of Lies was written by Crowley in 1913, revised in 1952. I regularly go back and reread the Book of Lies. Uh, it's very interesting. And uh, its full name is The Book of Lies, which is also falsely called Breaks, The Wanderings or Falsifications of the One Thought of Frater, Perdurabo, in parentheses, Aleister Crawley, which thought is itself untrue. So the title of the book is itself kind of a joke. It says it's a book of lies, a bunch of deviations from a thought, which is itself untrue. So they're lies of lies. Does that mean that they're true? Well, you really have to decide for yourself. It's a collection of poems, mostly prose poems, mostly one page, all written by Crowley. Crowley alleges in another one of his memoirs, he was invited into a secret society because of this book. He was approached by the Grand Master of the Ordo Templi Orientis, who said, essentially, 
you know the secret of our order. And Crowley said, in response, I have no idea what you're talking about. The Grandmaster then produced the Book of Lies and showed him a certain chapter and said, there's the secret. So Crowley realized he had stumbled onto a secret and expressed it symbolically, perhaps even unconsciously, while attempting to write about something else. And then he went on to become the head of the Ordo Templi Orientis in the United Kingdom. So this is a reason for thinking that Book of Lies is an interesting book, and I've always been you know, fascinated by it and always trying to puzzle out what the different chapters mean. This is an atavistic pastime of mine. Many people speak ill of Crowley, so let me quickly address two slanders advanced against him. And in defending Crowley, you may see me as defending witchcraft a little bit. Um, Crowley is just one famous witch. I guess he is a warlock. Uh, he's certainly not representative of the movement, which is very diverse. But let me say two things that I think are very unfair about uh, unfairly advanced against Crowley. One, it said he was a devotee of the devil. No, he wasn't. Crowley did adopt the moniker The Beast at one point. I've always gotten the strong sense it was satirical because, well, first of all, he's a jokester, as the very title of his book, The Book of Lies, suggests. And second, in many of his writings, he denies the reality of spirits altogether, saying that the beings he has been in contact with through his spells are just part of his unconscious, making itself manifest. Not always. Sometimes he says um, you can distinguish between real and fake manifestations if you're critical and you're discerning. But uh, he does often say that they're just things that came out of his unconscious. In any event, I don't see Crowley as a devil worshiper, at least not consciously. You're going to need some additional theology in order to establish that he's a devil worshiper. If you want to say that anyone who does magic is ultimately answering to a demon, you might think that but um, you'd have to have an additional premise to get to the conclusion that Crowley was somehow involved with the devil. Uh, at least he wasn't consciously trying to be involved with a being that he saw as evil, as the prime cause of evil in the world. Two, people put Crowley down as having been a heroin addict, but they forget Crowley had lifelong asthma. Heroin was prescribed as a treatment for his asthma. Also, he got off the heroin when the Germans started manufacturing a new asthma drug. I think it was ephedrine, but I'm not sure. In any event, he got himself off the heroin and onto a legit asthma drug for a while. Here's what killed him. It was World War II. When World War II started, the Britons could not get asthma medication from Germany. So Crowley went back on the heroin, and eventually it killed him. But he lived to be 72 years old. So it's not like he died tragically young because he was abusing drugs. It sounds like he was dependent on heroin, therapeutic reasons, and then, you know, I don't know, 72 years is a long time to live, I think. So maybe the term heroin addict isn't even appropriate. Maybe he was just dependent on a therapeutic dose of heroin. I could do a whole episode on Crowley sometime. Probably I could do a whole series of episodes because he's been very influential in the magical world, having started a tradition called Thelema, and uh, be fun to go into that. But I just want to leave it there. People say negative things about Mr. Crowley and witches, but let's leave the slander off the table and stick to legit criticisms of his work. Let's move on to the topic of weird books. 
and talk about a lost book that has been, in a sense, rediscovered, The Valediction of Moses. The Valediction of Moses was discovered by a Jewish-Ukrainian man, Moses Wilhelm Shapira. Shapira had moved to Jerusalem from Ukraine in 1925. He had converted to Christianity and gotten involved in searching for biblical relics. He then became kind of a, a dealer of relics and sold a number of them to British museums. According to Shapira, in 1878, he learned about leather fragments that Bedouins had reportedly found in a cave on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. There they found several linen-wrapped bundles that contained strips of blackened leather. And one of the Bedouins took these strips because he thought it might bring good luck. When Shapira got hold of it, he recognized that this was something important, and he purchased 16 leather strips, which turned out to be manuscript fragments of varying length and condition. Shapira then traveled to Europe, where he sought to authenticate what was uh, bits of a manuscript. He presented them to the Germans, but they were not interested. Then he went to the British archaeological authorities, who he had an ongoing relationship with. Everyone ultimately decided that they were fakes. Shapira was discredited in the British press. Six months later, he committed suicide. But now a scholar has argued that Shapira's Valediction of Moses text is actually an authentic early version of the book of Deuteronomy. Among his reasons for thinking this, for thinking that the 19th century European experts got it all wrong, one, anti-Semitism. Shapira, as I've noted, was uh, Jewish. He was also Arab. They were particularly racist against Jews and Arabs. Two, Shapira had previously sold a forgery to the Europeans, although all our sources suggest he had himself been fooled. He was, after all, a collector, not himself an expert, so he sometimes got it wrong. Three, there was a British scholar who had some kind of vendetta against Shapira. He went out of his way to declare Shapira's manuscript to be a forgery, despite having only limited access to it. Four, this is probably one of the best reasons for thinking it wasn't fake. Years later, they found that Shapira had been keeping private notes on the manuscript. He had been trying with limited success to decipher it. When you look at these notes that Shapira kept private all his life, it suggests that he had been making a good faith effort to interpret this document, and he had not really succeeded very well. Um, and that suggests that, you know, it was real. Why would he be trying in private to decipher the manuscript if it was a forgery that he himself had cooked up? And five, the biggest reason for thinking the manuscript was a fake in the 19th century was that nobody believed a 3,000-year-old text could survive. They figured it would just decay due to moisture exposure. In fact, years after the Shapira incident, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, a collection of ancient Jewish texts, people rejected those scrolls for years, saying, this is just like the Shapira incident. We all know that nothing can last 3,000 years. But today, it turns out we all know, if properly sealed, even sheepskin can last thousands of years. So now they think this is a real, authentic version of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, it's missing some stuff. It's missing the Decalogue. That would be the Ten Commandments. And we don't have the full details on it yet, but it's exciting to think that there could be an early version of the book of Deuteronomy out there. If you're not familiar with this book, it's one of the five books of the Pentateuch. I think it's the Pentateuch. 
which is also known as the Torah. Uh, these are the central texts of the Jewish tradition. Deuteronomy contains the ancient laws of ancient Israel and includes such laws as the command to cancel debts. And I'll read this one in full. <clears throat> Quote, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. He will richly bless you, if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. I thought this was a particularly interesting command. There's a private dimension to it. Cancel the debts of your fellow countrymen every seven years. There's also a public dimension to it. You're not supposed to borrow money from foreigners. Uh, presumably even your government is not allowed to borrow money from foreigners. So take that U.S. Treasury. Deuteronomy is a complex text, you know, spelling out laws for the people of Israel. And I'm all for forgiving everyone's debts every seven years, by the way. Think about how that would constrain capitalism here in the U.S. How many of you have uh, credit card debt or student loans you've had for more than seven years? There would be none of that. On the other hand, Deuteronomy allows people to be held as slaves for up to seven years. If you're a foreigner, you can be held longer than that. So maybe you would prefer to live in a world with long-term inescapable debt rather than live in a world where you can be enslaved for up to seven years or if you're enslaved by a foreigner longer. Seven years is a long time. It seems like you can make a mistake, pay for it for seven years, and then still have a life afterwards. If you get into terrible debt when you're 20, you'd be out of it before you're 30. And so it doesn't seem terrible to me. In any event, you, they are finding ancient texts connected with the Hebrew, Christian, and Hermetic traditions from time to time, to say nothing of Hindu, Buddhist, Zoroastrian, and others. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for news about ancient sacred texts. And uh, last thing to note, we don't have a copy of the Valediction of Moses anymore. Because it was condemned as a forgery, it was sold off into a private collection, and we don't know where it is. So it is a, indeed a lost text, although they do have copies now of Shapira's notes. And so hopefully they can um, reconstruct it from his notes. More on this story as it unfolds. All right, that concludes our news roundup. As I already said, next week we will be doing a story on the Irish good people or we people or fairies or however you wish to call them. So come in for that. Until then, I have been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane.